0: Welcome to our weekly Wednesday night share. Baruch Hashem again, tonight there's many things happening on my schedule. If I don't have time, I won't be able to deliver the shiach tonight. I'm doing it on Wednesday afternoon instead. Shir. She is Lila Nishmas, Lila Nishmas Shmuel Yaakov, and Jeanette Bass Avraham Akrain. Pasha's Boy. Dalit Shvat tonight, which would again be the outside of the Babasali. the Baba Saldir of Yisrael a sage from Morocco, who lived in Yisrael. And uh, we've told stories of connections of he and the Rebbe in the past. A little different of a story. Of Shenyid Dov Sali felt maybe he wanted to move to the United States of America. And he wrote to the Rebbe. The Rebbe quite adamantly told him how he needed to be in cell in the Holy Land of Israel. He was living in Yavneh. And his son-in-law Rabbi Crispin, very f- special man, I've had the excuse of having him in my house several times. Sukha. He tells a story of a krill that had opened in Yavne, and Rasha Kil, head of the krill, Wanted very much to meet with the holy Babasali. So he came to the son of Law and he said, Listen, you have pulled, you have, please get me in. And Merry Christmas said, Okay. And he got him a private audience to come into the Babasali. The Babasali, being the holy soul which he was, was able to size somebody up as soon as they walked in. So a rabbi told his son in law, go bring some refreshments. Tradition was that he would give, he would drink from the wine or he'd pour the wine or whatever it was, and this was uh, in itself a very spir- spiritual blessing. But Crispin stepped out to get refreshments. And apparently, while he was out, unbeknownst to him, the Rashakul, the rabbi, told the Babasali how he is a descendant from the Vilnagon. The Vilnagon was a great learned person, learned rabbi, sage. He had a very, very strong vendetta against the Altwebe, against the Magid and more importantly, against the Baal Shem HaKadosh. He would sit and... I would say, I'm not going to tell you, be little or whatever. He, wasn't, he didn't talk complimentary about the Baal Shem Tov. And this fellow mentions this fact to the Babasali. The Babasali became very, 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 very agitated, very upset, And at that point, law returned into the room, and he told the law, "Who did you bring me here? Get him out. Get him out. Get his coil out. Get everything. Get them out of the city." law was devastated. I didn't know the man personally. I didn't bring him in on a personal recommendation. He he came in. He asked to come inside. So so, you know, the Bab-Sali was furious. Anyway, at the time, Rabbi Crispin would travel every day from Lud, come to Yavda. And the Salih said, let him get out of the Kailu, let him get out of here, there'll be better ones to replace. Eh, excuse me, he didn't say anything, that's it. The next day, when he came from Lud, he passed by the cradle and so the doors closed. Doors are closed, the rabbis gone, the people are gone, everybody's gone. Turned out that the municipal, the city itself, came and said there's no funding for them, there's no reason to have them here, they should leave. And they left. Ever Crispin came back to the Babasali and said, Well, what happened? What have you done? Rabbi Sally said, it's fine. There's no reason for them to be here. A better coil will replace them fast enough. Rabbi Crispin, a while later, traveled to Brooklyn, New York. And he came to the Rebbe. And he came into the and he made a bracha which is traditional, the first time you see the Rebbe, the Rebbe answered, "Amen." And he began to tell the story of this kail. <clears throat> the Rebbe was very intrigued. The Rebbe asked again and again to repeat this, to repeat that, to make to clarify this point, clarify that point. The Rebbe wanted every point of this story, of exactly what the Baba Salih said, how the Baba Sahli handled. Short time after that, by the way, the Babasali himself moved out of Yavna to Netivot, wherever he went. But a place that had such a curl, he didn't want to be in. Somebody he says that makes fun of the Balshemtiv is just not, just not. Tonight is the well, the is yardside. And I'm sure that many, many people are going to light a candle tonight for the Baba Ali. This is not a advertisement for that. An advertisement for that. It's not i I'm not trying to <coughs> those that would like I guess if they feel they want to be connected, if they were connected, if they liked it, I don't know how you would do it they would light a candle tonight in the memory of the Babu Sali. One thing for sure, to take on an extra mitzvah, to give an extra coin to Tzedakah, to do a hidden mitzvah, to daven an extra minute, would not hurt the Yilin Ishmas of Yisrael Babu of the, the Avdol the Rebbe then told her about Crispin, by the way, that uh, he knows so many stories of the of the Abu family that I encouraged him very strongly to document and to write the stories down and to publish them and people should know should know who this person is and who this person was, and we should always remember the great miracles and happenings that happened with the Babasali. At least the third time I'm giving a Shiran Dalit Shvat. And again, like the first time and the second time, this is the story that I found, and the others that I've told before I did not find again. So, call it what you like. I guess the gist of the story, as we would say, is the importance of... The belief in the tzaddik, especially a tzaddik like the Bashama Kodesh. And that brings us to our Parsha, the belief of Kal Yisrael in their tzaddik, their, in their Mesh of their generation. <laughs> the first Rashi in the Tera, in Bereshis. Says the We don't need. What don't we need? We did, shouldn't have started the Tera with Beresh's bottle, the world is created by God in heaven. God created the world, the heavens and the earths. But rather, since the Tera is a lashon hayo, is a word meaning lessons. And have life lessons and teaches us lessons. Therefore, Torah should have started with a mitzvah. And the first mitzvah, the first commandment that should have been mentioned, is which is the first commandment in the Torah mentioned, is in our parsha, Perek Yidbeis, Paskik chapter twelve, verse two. reish chadashim. Rishin this month should be to you for the first, head of the month, the first of the months of the year. And we know that the heads of the month were established by the seeing of the Mele, the birth of the moon, and the Bezdin, the judges, the courts, established and they sanctified this day of And we know, of course, how David and Yitzchak said, we just mentioned before why did the Hei why does the Tatum not begin with this mitzvah? This first mitzvah that's given to the Jews once they've become a nation, is to determine, as we said, and sanctify the first day of every month. And thereby creating a Jewish calendar. As we said, the words, and this this month should be the head of the month. Now, can also be translated as the renewal, Chadesh, word of Khadash, of new. Meaning that God actually showed Moshe the crescent moon, and said that this renewal, when the moon renews itself, that will be determined as the head of the month. So explains. So the priority given to this mitzvah suggests that fa- sanctifying reshchedish is a model mitzvah, and it represents under, the underlying, the underlying theme actually, of all the mitzvahs. What is the primary objective of all the mitzvahs? is to transform the physical world from mundane to holy by using any physical object to perform a mitzvah we reveal the godly purpose for which the object was created and thereby sanctifying said item so when we take something a lulav an esrug, whatever it might be, and we make a blessing on this, this shape for the ram's horn, and we make a blessing on that, we are saying, You sanctified us by commanding this commandment. The woman lighting the Shabbos candle on a Friday evening, she is sanctifying, This candle that is an ordinary candle becomes a holy item. We see this action, the sanctification of Rosh embodies this whole idea. That the mitzvah of Rosh sanctifies time. Time. Now we know that time is very, very special and very holy. We know that time doesn't stand still. And time waits for no one. But more importantly, we can never get back any given second. Any second that passes in our daily life is gone. We will never get that second back. The question is going to come about of what happens if we wasted a second. Can we, what can we do about that? But actually, if a second passes and we did nothing, it's gone. The mitzvah of takes a simple day. It could be as it was Monday yesterday. Uh, yeah, Monday. This past Monday was a Monday like every other Monday. However, it was declared reshchedish, the head of the month, and therefore became a special day. It's no longer a regular weekday. There are special offerings that were brought in the Holy Temple. There are different laws. Basically, women don't do laundry, etc. on Rish Chedish. They don't cut our hair on Rish Chedish. It's not Shabbos. And it's not actually even Yom Tif, But it becomes a special day in its own right. And this day requires that the Bezdin, the judicial, the Jewish judicial court establishes and begins to calculate the constant cycles and patterns of the sun and the moon. So therefore we see, this mitzvah to establish a Jewish calendar not only elevates the days that were made holy as Rishchidosh, but holidays that are upheld throughout a month are based on the day of Rishchidosh before. Which therefore gives a godly purpose into every single moment of our life. Therefore Rishchidosh, the first mitzvah commanded, It's a visible act of sanctifying the mundane, which is the essential theme of all mitzvahs. And more so, time, which marks and is defined by change, is the first and most basic characteristic to every created being. It's the change from non existent to existence. As such, just as the time is the very first creation, is sanctification, is the very first mitzvah. It becomes Jewish time. Generally, time is not in our control. We, don't, we can't control time. Like we said before, we can't make time stand still, we can't make time longer, we can't make time shorter. Although if we know that we want to do something, we want to make it happen faster, and if we don't want something to happen, we want to take longer. If there's somebody that's far away from us, and we want to meet them, and we know that we're going to meet them in a minute, in five minutes and a half hour, every minute is painful. And we want to make those minutes go faster. Unfortunately, they take so long. They literally become painful. So therefore, time is always equal. The 60 seconds are a minute. Not necessarily 60 minutes are an hour. Don't ask for that now. Still in Allah HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives the Jew the strength to sanctify time. And to make it Jewish time. A time that is bound with sanctity, with teda and with mitzvahs. And through this conquering on time, we conquer ultimately the whole world. Because everything goes under the realm of sanctity and this too will be the conquering of Eretz physically and the coming of Mashiach for he too will gather all the Jews that are spread throughout the world the Sanhedrin will return to Yerushalayim and they will once again sanctify the new month and this will bring about ultimate Gola. So it's not just a new month. It's not just the Rish factor. It's so much more. And it teaches us so many greater values. This week's Parashat Boy, as we said last week, Blai is a numerical value of three. And therefore, in this parsha, we have the last three of the ten plagues. In the beginning of the parsha, though, Paray confronts Moshe and says to him, asks him a very intriguing question. After Moshe has repeatedly said, let my people go, let the Jews out of Egypt. He asks Moshe again, Me, v'mi, ha Who's going? And Moshe answers, doesn't say everybody. He doesn't say I'm going, or my brother's going. He says, Our youth and our elders will go. What is this dialogue between Pari and Mesha? The Balatudim is known for his Gematrias. A gematria is a numerical value for every letter. And therefore, I forget the word in English. If I remember the word in English, I can't pronounce it. <coughs> and therefore, since every letter has an numerical value, we look at we take certain letters in combination, and they can sometimes be transformed into different words. For example, the words mi Mia Hilken me is 40 and Yud is 10, which is 50. me is another 56, which is 106. Hahelchim. hey, hey is 10, each hey is 5. Vav is 16, 6. Lamed is 30, makes it 46. Chaf is 20, makes it 66. Yud is 10 76, and Mem is 40, which is 116. 116 plus the 106 that we mentioned before. That's the same numerical value as the words Kalev Ubenun. There were two of the spies, who were leaders of their tribes. Koleiv ben and Yahishua ben Nun. These two people, when the decree of the spies came about, they withstood. They withstood, and they did not allow themselves to fall into the traps, to the words of the mouth of the meraglim of the spies. And they said, no, we are allowed, we can go in, we can't conquer, we should go in. And therefore, Khalid and Yeshua bin nun were allowed to go into Israel. However, at that point in time, a decree was put down that the Jews would travel 40 years in the desert, and during those 40 years, pretty much everybody that was there at that time would pass. So Pari, therefore, tells Moshe, "Miva which means, I know very well, my stargazers have told me, that it will only be Kolev and Yeshua that will go into Eretz Yisrael. Why are you bothering everyone else? Why are you schlepping them through a desert? Let Yeshua and Kalev go and they'll go and everybody else can stay here. Even you and your brother are not going in. And Maisha answers, you are mistaken. The decree in the desert will only be on the people aged 20 to 60. Anyone younger than 20 will not be in the decree. Anyone over 60 will not be in the decree. Therefore, as let the entire nation go because those people are also going into it. These dialogues were not easy. More so for Mashir as we spoke many times, a roya nemon, a devoted shepherd, could not stand by and see anyone left behind. But there was a problem, a problem that was a little a bit out of Moshe's hands at the moment. And that problem is that the Jewish nation, living amongst the Egyptians, had become very acclimated, had become very assimilated, had fallen into the idol worship of the Egyptians. And therefore, there was a big, big headache for him to go and confront the Jews each time and say, Kinderlach, we're leaving, because they were not prepared to leave. We find, though, prior to the leaving, on the 10th day of Nisan, the Jews left on the 14th and Nisan on the 10th. They were told to take a sheep and tie it to their bedposts. Tie it to their bedposts until the 14th of the month. And at that point they would slaughter them and bring them as a caravan. Needless to say, this is the Egyptians most awful nightmare because they would worship the sheep Not, not like a pet they bowed down to the sheep it was their God, one of their gods so therefore when they saw the Jews taking a little rope Tying it around the neck of the sheep and taking them and tying them to their bedpost, they said, ah, Excuse me, what are you doing? And the Yid would boldly answer, I am going to slaughter him. In four days, I will slaughter your God. Why the drama? And if you want to do drama, do like you did by Nayak. Nayak was 120 years. He built an ark for 120 years. People kept asking why, and he kept telling them. It didn't help. So here you're taking the sheep because it's their God, their deity. Take it, the it. What's the whole thing here? What is the delay? Rashi comments the four days were very very necessary because the time of redemption had arrived but B'nai Yisrael were too steeped into the idolatry idolatry and they didn't want to leave Egypt Egypt the shame of the earth but they didn't want to leave stop with them would mean the redemption is incomplete The slaughtering of a sheep, which as we said before, the Egyptian deity, for the Pesach sacrifice, was a form of rehabilitation for the Jews. The Jews not only dabbled in idolatry, they were steeped knee high. Not knee high, up to their necks. 49 of the 50 levels of of impurity they were sitting in. So this one-time act that renounced this previous obsession with idolatry was not enough to deprogram them from the Egyptian influence. A longer process was required. And therefore, four days of introspection Four days of devotion, dedication, of looking at that sheep and saying, eh, you're going to die. And with that, your religion, and with that everything that we ever connected to in your religion, we're going to just cut this out. Four days though. Four days. Why four days? We see four days prior. We see another case of four days in one of the most infamous stories of the Jewish nation, the sacrifice that Abraham brings as he brings his son Isaac to the altar. Akedas Yitzchok. Hashem tells him, Hashem tells him, take your son Yitzchok, and bring him to the altar and bring him as a sacrifice to me. No, I don't want it to die. No, I don't want you without a phone. I'll send you the video. Take him to the altar. Avram says, "Okay." You say so. And he takes the next morning. Gets up very early. And he takes Yitzchak. He takes two servants. He takes the wood. He doesn't want to be lacking everything. Anything. He wants to make sure that whenever God says. Do it he'll be ready wherever it is he doesn't have to look for wood, shouldn't have to look for, for a knife, he shouldn't have to look for for the fire, anything everything should be ready. but he heads out the next morning very early because this is what God's bidding was. tells us the datata yoim Hashlishi. It was on the third day. The third day of the travel to go and to bring the sacrifice Yitzchak. It was on this third day that Abraham lifts up his eyes and in the distance discovers the mountain, sees the place where the sacrifice was to be brought. So, let us say he was told on Sunday, on Monday he started to travel, Tuesday and Wednesday, the third day of his travel, bringing us from the original command, four days. Four days. And Rashi explains the immediate question which is asked by the Mechamish the Mikra, by the child studying Torah why four days? And not, why not immediately? And to which Rashi answers the four days were very important why so that people should not say that he confused him he confounded him suddenly overwhelmed his mind but if abraham would have had time to think it over never have gone through with it had he acted on instinct people would have said, he snapped. After all, how often does God call you at night? Incidentally, there's another very, very interesting question. Tangentially returning to what we were talking about before with the new moon. Um, We know that God wanted to show the value of Meshach. And by showing him the value of Moshe and how special and holy he was, God sought to appear to Moshe by day. All of the prophets, many nations, or even prophets of the Jews, saw God at night, in a dream. And Moshe spoke to God by day. And that was a novelty of Moshe. So the immediate question becomes, if that's the case, how did he see the moon? What moon did he see? It was daytime. So obviously the sages are not going to get caught flat-footed. And the response to that is that this conversation took place towards the end of the day. Sunset time. Twilight. Still day. But the moon was able to show itself. Just in case that question has been bothering anybody, I just to throw it out there. Anyway, had Avraham Avinu gone and slaughtered Yitzchak on the spot, they would have said he lost it. God screamed, he's jumped. We all know that a person's greatest passion is his children. The person loves their child unconditionally, A person loves their child and is willing to go to the greatest to the furthest to anything to do for their children. So where does it come off that Avram Avinu was ready to slaughter his child? Therefore he was given four days four days to contemplate knowing that he had only one son from this wife Sarah this one and only child he was going to bring on an altar and and sacrifice him four days Rabbi say oh no One second, we have an issue with the video for a change. Four days, Mesha Avramavino, I'm sorry, was delayed before he could bring the sacrifice, before he could bring Yizkhak to the altar. Therefore, at the end of that four days when he was ultimately prepared to lift that knife over Yitzhak's head and to bring his son as a sacrifice it's indisputable that he did so completely sound of mind He had plenty of time to think it through. Therefore, to remove the shame of the Egyptians, to remove the shame of the Egyptian influence over the Jewish people, the Jews were not only commanded to slaughter the sheep, but to start the process four days in advance. Fully aware of what they were about to do. The video froze for a change. And by slaughtering a creature that they had once considered a deity, that they had once considered a god, al Islam. after four, th- four days of thought and awareness they effectively indisputedly purge themselves of their idolatrous state of mind hence giving them the detox that was needed and giving them a pureness of heart and of mind when they brought this as a sacrifice and thereby freeing themselves of this captivity which captivated them not just physically but spiritually. Okay, picking up now on the second part of video, video part two. We're going to another point. Uh, if you've missed the other point, obviously you have. For the few minutes, you have to go to the audio. The Ninth of the 10 plagues darkness a thick darkness was spread over the entire land of Egypt what was the purpose of the darkness One of the purposes of this darkness was to allow the Jews to enter the Egyptian homes and to take note of their possessions. This ultimately facilitated their fulfillment of God's command that upon their redemption... Their redemption, they should empty Egypt of all its valuables. And Rashi explains when the Jews were leaving Egypt, they requested certain items. If the Egyptians told them, We don't have anything, we have nothing, they would reply, We sought in your house in this and this place. They knew exactly where to find it. And this, of course, then left the Egyptians with no choice but to acquiesce and to give whatever the Jews asked them. A similar account is found in the Midrash. And the Medish adds, however, that the B'nai Yisrael canvassed the Egyptians' homes in a supernatural manner. Whenever B'nai Yisrael went somewhere, light accompanied them, and it illuminated in all everything that was in barrels and closets and hidden recesses in the Egyptian homes. This is what the Medish says. In contrast, Rashi implies though that the darkness enabled the search by blinding the Egyptians Bnei Yisrael, actually combed through their homes by natural means. Which could mean they had actually flashlights, or whatever it was they needed to take. Rashi's opinion supports the principle that the natural processes involved in performing a mitzvah are a significant component of the mitzvah itself not to go around about and do things and run about but rather the natural way the way the mitzvah is supposed to happen we complete the mitzvah with the fullness naturally with all our faculties And this is because the purpose of all mitzvahs is to bring godliness into the world. And not just a godliness, but to bring godliness into the world in a way That it's tangible. When a person does a mitzvah he sanctifies not only the object which is performed as we spoke before about Skhridish, that we sanctify the actual time, but even more so here, the person sanctifies the physical concept the physical creation which he is holding in his hand and he's making a blessing over it he's thereby making this and sanctifying this and making the physical essence which he is holding in his hand into something holy he takes the mundane out of it and turns it into something totally holy Any other physical means that contributed toward the fulfillment of the mitzvah also become holy. So the luluv and the esrig don't work on their own. In order to have the actual mitzvah completed the luluv needs to have the esrig with it needs to be bound with the hadassim, with the harovus, etc. And therefore, a mitzvah takes everything involved in the mitzvah, encompasses that, and brings it into spirituality. And therefore, sometimes there is a hardship, a financial cost involved in fulfilling a mitzvah. So we are provided with the opportunity for even more of our lives to be included included in and elevated by the Holy Act. Because if these costs were circumvented through supernatural means part of the mundane natural world would remain unaffected. And therefore we don't rely on miraculous money to do a mitzvah excuse me, to make Shabbos to make Yom Tif but rather we do it with our physical toil so that we have accomplished that this mitzah has become a physical connection to God. Rashi therefore deduces that the fulfillment of God's command that B'nai shall empty Egypt of its valuables involved effort of conducting an ordinary natural search. Not that a light went with them. They had their natural ways of looking. They didn't just find the things naturally, but spiritually. They had to go look for each thing. It wasn't shown to them, it wasn't revealed to them, like the mother says. The opportunity for this mitzvah to elevate the natural processes of life would have been diminished if it would have done in such a way that it could have just been happening by itself. We see the beginning of the Pasha. Pare is once again adamantly refusing to let the Jews leave. And God tells Moshe, (laughs) I hardened their hearts. So yes, they obviously don't want to let you leave. (laughs) So the question stands. So why is it Parai's fault? God hardened his heart. How is he supposed to do anything? How is anything supposed to be accomplished if God hardened his heart? We know that if a person decides he wants to do a sin. With the intention of repenting, which doesn't mean the intention of repenting, but rather he says, I could do the sin and tomorrow I'll repent. We don't give him the opportunity to repent. However, although he's not given the opportunity to repent, and although it's not made easy for him to repent, actually he has to end up with obstacles before he can repent, still in all, there is a capacity within the Jew, he can overcome this, and he could actually repent but this is not going to be a simple task this is one that a person needs to overpower himself overpower his existence his very being in order for that to happen and we learned this from Pari because God said I hardened his heart and that's why he's not letting you go and in that case the question begs to differ. why in that case even bring in any more plagues The plague is superfluous. It's not going to change the situation. It's not going to make him think differently. It's not going to make him act differently. Why any more plagues? And to this, the Torah tells us that indeed there were more plagues. And the reason for the more plagues was to push him to the limit. And to tell him that yes, it's going to be very hard because I'm actually working against you. But you can, if you want, if you apply yourself, you throw yourself into this, you can make it happen. You can find it in your heart to set the Jewish nation free. And because you're not doing that, that's why you're getting more plagues. But the essence tells us a very strong life lesson that we, as Jews, always have this opportunity to do that Shuvah. We can persevere. We can push, forge ahead, and ultimately do that Shuvah which God will accept. May we fulfill that mitzvah. May we do that ultimate Shuvah. May we find ourselves this Shabbos. Yidushalayim <laughs> And we'll be able to say that B'Shalach we were sent out of Golis. Shabbat Shalom to all.